And when I say a lot of names, I mean a lot, a lot of names. So we'll be reading the first couple of verses, and then we'll be skipping ahead a little bit. Uh, we have had a high degree of difficulty this morning, as in addition to all of these names, David mentioned I taught on Song of Solomon this morning, uh, and my parents were there, which was uh, not awkward at all, okay? And my nephew too, so hey, bring the whole family. Well, we're going to look at Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12 as we consider how God's grace puts people back together again. We'll begin with the first two chapters of, uh, of chapter 11, and then we'll jump ahead to chapter 12, verse 27. This is the reading of God's word. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Then we have a list of those names of people who decided to live in Jerusalem. The ordinary people, the lay leaders, the priests, and the Levites who assisted the priests, the temple servants, the musicians. And then we find ourselves in chapter 12, verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem... They sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nethophontes, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Osmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they've purified the people and the gates of the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs to give thanks. Skipping ahead to verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the, into them the portions required by the law for the priests, for the Levites, to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. O Lord our God, 
We thank you for your word. We thank you for the glorious reconstruction of the city of Jerusalem. We thank you that this great city is the city of God. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, for we, your servants, listen. Hear our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, imagine this scene. You are the pastor of a church. And you're standing up in front of a large congregation of people, hundreds and hundreds of people, next to a groom who is about to get married to a bride who is walking down the aisle. The bride reaches the front of the church, and the groom says, I love you, but I kind of wish you were bigger. I love you, but I kind of wish that you were older or younger. I love you, but I kind of wish that you were more interesting. I love you, but I can't really commit to you exclusively. I'd still like to see other people. I love you, but I have no interest in serving you. In fact, I was kind of hoping that you would serve me. Now, can you imagine saying that to your bride on your wedding day? I cannot. And yet, I have heard all of those things said about the church. I have heard all of those things said about the bride of Christ. And so the question before us today is, what makes the bride of Christ great? What makes the bride of Christ beautiful? What makes the bride of Christ something to celebrate and rejoice in? What makes the church great? Is it the size of the church? Is it the wealth of the church? Is it the pastor of the church? Is it the music or the youth group or the building? Are older churches more beautiful than younger churches? Are younger churches more beautiful than older churches? These are some of the questions that we'll be thinking about this morning as we continue our journey through the book of Nehemiah. Now, in the first six chapters of the book, God rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. Led by Nehemiah, a great man of deep faith, the people of Israel overcame physical, financial, emotional, organizational, and even spiritual challenges to rebuild the walls of the city. After a brief interlude in chapter 7, an interlude filled with many, many hard-to-pronounce names, the next six chapters of the book, including these two chapters before us today, are about God rebuilding the people of Jerusalem. In chapter 8, the people gathered together and heard a sermon. Uh, Nehemiah and Ezra and the priests of Israel preached for six straight hours on the first five books of the Old Testament. 
In chapter 9, the people confessed their sins for eight more hours. In chapter 10, the people made very bold, very public resolutions to serve the Lord with all of their hearts. To live lives of gratitude in response to God's grace. They said, we will obey God's commandments. We will keep the Sabbath. We will give generously. We will honor God in our marriage and dating relationships. And now, in chapters 11 and 12, we come to the crescendo of the second half of the book. In chapters 11 and 12, God's people will repopulate the city of Jerusalem, making Jerusalem a great city once again, a holy city, a city of God. Now, next week, we will read the tragic epilogue of the book, but for now, things couldn't be better. Things couldn't be any more glorious for this tiny moment in Jerusalem's history. Jerusalem, the city of peace, shows us what the world will become when Jesus, the Prince of Peace, comes back to make all things new. What makes a great church a great church? What made Jerusalem a great city? Well, rather than giving you the whole list right now, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to walk very slowly through the opening verses and chapters of 11 and 12, and we will discover all of the things that make a church a great church together. Okay? Sound good? Let's begin. The first thing we see is faith. Great churches have faith faith. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. Chapter 11 answers a dilemma that was first raised in chapter 7 where we read, chapter 7, verse 4, the city of Jerusalem was wide and large, but the people within it were few. Ezra focused on rebuilding the temple in the city. Nehemiah focused on rebuilding the walls surrounding the city, but the city itself remained relatively uninhabited. Like many people in our own world, people went into the city to work and do business, and then they would go home to the suburbs to live. Even the temple workers who worked every day in the temple of the Lord would go to the villages and the towns surrounding Jerusalem in order to live and farm and work with their families. Why? Well, because the suburbs are nice. You can have some land. You can have some animals. Less crime, less uh, congestion. You're not right on top of your neighbors all the time. In the ancient world, usually if a foreign army would attack, they would usually aim right for the capital city. In this case, the city of Jerusalem. Whereas the people in the villages largely went unscathed in time of war. What's not to love? So here's the question. 
if that's the case, if the suburbs are a great place to live, why would the leaders of Israel choose to live in Jerusalem? Why would all the people of Israel say, we will all put our names in a hat, you can draw names, and one in ten of us will voluntarily, joyfully go to live in the city of Jerusalem? The answer is, because they had faith. They believed that God could and would restore the city of Jerusalem. That he would, they would make Jerusalem a great city once again. They believed that Jerusalem was the city of God, the capital city of the promised land. The future home of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so they went, believing the promises of God. When they saw the city, they didn't see their history of failure. They saw the hope of God's redemption and restoration. They looked around at this once great city, now largely uninhabited, and they said, nothing is impossible with God. Great churches see the world through the eyes of faith. Great churches see people through the eyes of faith. Great churches say people can change and the world can change. Therefore, here I am, send me. Great churches are hopeful and optimistic because we believe in the God who rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. We believe in the God who brought his people home. And we believe that in the end, Jesus wins. And because Jesus wins, we have no reason to be afraid. The lower the world lays us, the higher our God raises us. Great churches have faith. Great churches believe the promises of God. The second thing we see is holiness. Great churches are holy. In chapter 11, verse 1, Jerusalem is called the holy city. What does that mean? What is holiness? In what sense is Jerusalem holy? Now, sadly, many people in our world, and even in the Christian world, view holiness uh, with a degree of suspicion and perhaps even contempt. Holy people are boring people. Holy people are legalistic and moralistic. Holy people never have any fun. This is somewhat of a dated reference, but uh, it's like the church lady from Saturday Night Live. You know, this sort of uh, a very tight, uptight, buttoned-all-the-way person. That's holiness. Well, the Bible paints an entirely different picture of holiness. In the Bible, holiness is beautiful. In the Bible, holiness is good. In the Bible, sin leads to sorrow while holiness leads to joy. In the Bible, holiness essentially involves two things. First, holy people are separate from the world. And second, 
holy people are set apart for the world. Holy churches and holy people embrace what God embraces and reject what God rejects. As holy people, we love sinners. We are sinners. And yet, we see that sin is ultimately destructive and harmful. Like Jerusalem, God wants our church to be a city on a hill, a light to the nations, distinct from our culture, and yet saying to our culture, you are welcome here. Come, all who labor and are heavy laden, and Jesus will give you rest. There's a sense in which holiness says, build a wall. Build the wall surrounding Jerusalem. Don't let sin inside the wall. Don't let impurity come inside the wall. And yet, there's another sense in which holiness says, don't forget that there are gates in the wall. Don't forget to build bridges. Don't forget that this city does not exist for the good of the people who live inside the city. It exists for the good of people who live outside the city. So that all might see Jesus and the beauty of his grace. Ultimately, holiness is who God is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And... Holiness is who God is calling us to be so that everyone would see Jesus. The third thing we see is grace. Great churches are gracious churches. Now, you might have, if you read the whole passage and all the names and all the lists, you will see that the priests are mentioned 13 times in these two chapters, whereas the Levites who assisted the priests in their temple work are mentioned 16 times, and the temple servants are mentioned twice. Why? Well, according to uh, Professor T.J. Betts, he makes this helpful observation. He writes, the lists of priests and Levites serving in Jerusalem in Nehemiah 11 and 12 attest to the city's holy purpose of worshiping the Lord with their sacrifices. You see, when the people of Israel sinned, they would offer sacrifices to the Lord their God. In Israel, a sinless animal would die in their place as a substitute. Once that sinless animal died, God's justice would be satisfied and the people would have atonement, literally, at one meant with God. They would be received for the sake of the substitute who died in their place. Their sin, the very thing that was separating them from God, was gone forever. Did they deserve forgiveness? No. Do we deserve forgiveness? No. That's why it's called grace. God forgives us because he's gracious. He forgives us because Jesus is the Lamb of God who died on the cross in our place as our substitute. The whole sacrificial system 
was preparing the people of old for Jesus. All the priests and all the Levites and all the temple servants remind us that the church is a place where sinners receive God's grace. So that, having received God's grace, we might be gracious to one another. Even when we offend one another, even when we misunderstand one another, even when we hurt one another. My prayer is that God's grace would be the heartbeat of everything that we do as a church. Every song that we sing, every prayer that we pray, every sermon that I preach, that we might be loving and forgiving and gracious with one another, for God in Christ has been gracious to us. We all need grace. The world needs grace. Grace, Jesus, gives us the grace we need. The fourth thing we see is encouragement. Great churches are filled with encouragers. Verse 2, And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. They publicly acknowledged all all the men and all the women and all the children who volunteered to live in the city of God. They said, may the Lord bless you in Jerusalem. May the Lord prosper you in Jerusalem. May the Lord give you health and happiness and success in the city of God. May the Lord honor your sacrifice. When we bless someone in the church, we are saying, I affirm you, I appreciate you, I recognize the talents that God has given you, I recognize you for your service and your sacrifice to the body of Christ. You know, often when we hear an offertory in the church, we break out in applause. Why? Because we want to encourage our musicians. Because we want to encourage our singers. We want to acknowledge and say, you have used your gifts as a gift for us in the service of our God. And we recognize you. We appreciate you. We see all that God is doing in your life. And we want to glorify him by recognizing you. Let me encourage you To be encouragers. Encourage one another. Encouragement can be a very powerful thing. Affirmation can be a very, very powerful thing. Do you know, some of you do, that I keep every encouraging note that you send me? Every single one I have for years. Do you know that I remember Every encouraging word that you say to me after a worship service, that means the world to me. Words are very, very powerful. Last Saturday, and I'll see if I can get through this without crying, our sweet dog died. Our beautiful Geneva, the sweetest dog we ever had. It was heartbreaking. So much so that I didn't say it yesterday because there's a 0% chance that I could have continued speaking after saying those words. But 
in this past week, I did not grieve alone. I grieved with you. Those of you who sent me notes of encouragement, those who wrote things in notes and emails and, and notes on Facebook and all of these different ways you communicated, the cards you sent and the stories that you told me about your dogs and the encouragement that you gave me that it's okay for a 45-year-old man to cry about a dog. Thank you. James, who was Jesus' younger brother, talks a lot about the power of words. Now, I don't believe that our words have magical powers. Uh, I do not believe that we can manifest reality with our words. Exhibit A being that I drive a Ford Fusion Hybrid uh, and not a McLaren. And Exhibit B being that I do not play point guard for the Los Angeles Lakers. But nevertheless, our words do have the power to build people up. And our words have the power to tear people down. Our words have the power to bless. And our words have the power to curse. Use your words wisely. Use your words well. If we encourage one another... If we become a congregation of encouragers, our church will be a great church. The fifth thing we see is that great churches have overseers named Joel. <laughs> Chapter 11, verse 9. Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer. I think that speaks for itself. Let's move on. The sixth thing we see is worship. Worship makes a church great. After a few more names, chapter 12 concludes with a giant, epic, citywide worship service. Chapter 12, verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all of their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Later, we are told that Nehemiah assembled two groups of people, two choirs, and that those choirs marched around the walls of the city, singing and praising and glorifying God, verse 42. And the singers sang with Jezrehiah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifice that, that day, and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. The people of Israel rejoiced with cymbals and harps and lyres. Lyres were kind of like guitars, stringed instruments that they would strum. Later, we're told that the people played trumpets in praise to the Lord, and they ended their celebration with sacrifices at the temple. Now, did you know that in those days, most of the time, the people, after they sacrificed these animals in the temple, would eat the meat, eat the meat that they had offered together with the priests. And so, after they worshipped, they had a giant nationwide church picnic together. 
minus the inflatable water slides. Great churches worship together. Great churches praise God and celebrate together. Something happens when God's people come together for worship. Something happens when we sing to the Lord with all of our might. Something happens when the joy of our church is heard from far away. We were made to worship God. We were made to glorify God and to enjoy Him together forever. Yes, we can do that on our own. But we must do that together as God's people. Great churches worship the Lord together. What makes a church great? Well, we looked at some of the things in, chapter, in Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12, and there are certainly more things that we could add. But ultimately, what makes a church great is the presence and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Israel was great because God had redeemed them. Israel was great because God brought them home. Jesus does the same thing for us. All of us are, by nature and by choice, slaves to sin, slaves to rebellion, slaves to sensualities and passions that are separated from God and seek to glorify ourselves over and above God. All of our sin is a worship disorder. And yet we have been redeemed by Jesus who loved us when we were his enemies, who made us part of his family of faith when we wanted nothing to do with him at all. And in so doing, he has redeemed us. He has set us free. Jesus has also brought us home, not to a new city, the old Jerusalem, but to a heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, where all of God's people will forever and ever glorify and praise the God who is our God forever and ever. Amen. Jesus, our God, brings us together as his people, and we live joyful, generous, holy, and happy lives because of him. God is great, and God has made us great because of Jesus. Let's go to him now in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we come to you confessing that we are often people who fall far short of the glory and goodness of who you've called us to be. I ask, Lord God, that you would make our church great. Not as the world sees greatness, but greatness in humility and greatness in service, and greatness in worship, and greatness in prayer. Oh, Lord God, may people see the face of Jesus as we gather together in praise and worship of him. Do this by the power and might of your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.